Now, if you are Venezuela, Saudi Arabia, or BP, the year has not started well. Something extraordinary has been happening to the oil price. Mr. Gage, you are now putting another billion dollars of your own money uh, into green innovation. Well, the returns will come uh, partly through the benefits to society, and so... Uh, well, good afternoon, everybody. Today, we're here to announce America's Clean Power Plan, a plan two years in the making, and the single most important step America has ever taken in the fight against global climate change. But I am convinced that no challenge poses a greater threat to our future. Hi, and welcome to this edition of the Off the Charts podcast. I'm your host and executive director of the Energy Policy Institute at UChicago, Sam Ori. The U.S. power grid is in a period of massive change. The good news? According to the latest federal government estimates, carbon emissions in the power sector are down an incredible 30% over the first four months of 2016, compared to the same period in 2008. There are, of course, many reasons for this, including weak demand growth and the large-scale substitution of natural gas for coal amid sustained low gas prices. But a near doubling of renewable generation has played a critical role as well. Meanwhile, wholesale electricity prices are plunging. Amid these changes, an unexpected casualty has emerged, America's fleet of nuclear power plants. These plants currently account for 60% of U.S. carbon-free electricity generation. Citing changing economic conditions, industry has threatened to close multiple plants. And according to Bloomberg New Energy Finance, more than a dozen additional plants are at risk of closing in the coming years. The debate is now raging. The industry says it needs subsidies to survive. Some environmentalists say nuclear is unnecessary and U.S. carbon goals can be accomplished without it. And states like California are letting nuclear licenses expire, opting not to pay the subsidies. But last week, the state of New York put forward an ambitious plan to get half its power from carbon-free sources by 2050, a goal it says it cannot accomplish without the nuclear subsidies. Was that the right choice? And if not, what's the path forward? With me to discuss is Steve Sakala, Assistant Professor at the Harris School of Public Policy. Steve, welcome. Thanks for having me. So I thought we might start off with just a little bit of background on the role of nuclear in the, in the U.S. power system. Uh, it's, it's a fairly important part of the U.S. power system. Uh, having, you know, really scaled up since the 1970s, and now is about 20% of U.S. total electricity generation, um, and, uh, and 60% of carbon-free power generation. Um, and that, that's sort of uh, under threat now, yep. it seems. Uh, and so let's talk a little bit about what are the, some of the drivers of that, and what's been, uh, what's been leading up to this? What got us to this point? Sure. Well, it's, as you said, about 20% of total generation and demand fluctuates over the course of the day. Uh, it's low at night, high over the course of the day. And so we need power plants that turn on and off when demand is high or, or low. And nuclear has served the role of a baseload here in the United States. In places like in, in France, where it's a much greater fraction of overall, overall power, they've designed their plants to be able to sort of scale up and down with demand. They follow load, is, is what they call it. Right. Here, they're just baseload plants. So the plants that we have, they turn on and they run flat out all year, as much as they can until they need to come down for refueling, and then they run flat out again. So all of the costs in the nuclear sector in the United States are these maintenance and operations costs that are just fixed costs that have to do with keeping the plant open. They're not about creating one more megawatt hour of power. So the, you know, the 
I think, conventional understanding of nuclear economics is that they're the most capital intensive uh, to build out. And uh, yep. if you think about it on a levelized cost of energy basis or just a, a pure capital basis, um, but then they're really cheap to operate. Uh, but they're really cheap to operate in one sense, in the in the sense of variable uh, cost. The fuel cost as a share of overall cost is very low. Yep. Um, but the but the maintenance costs, the cost to keep the plants running, uh, compared to other uh, forms of power, are actually uh, they're not insignificant. They're they're not insignificant, and so at some point. Uh, over the course of the year, you're basically, you know, you're running flat out and you're just collecting dollars depending on whatever the market clearing price of electricity is. When it's high, you're making all of that money. When it's low, you're not making so much and you just add it all up over the course of the year and say, okay, how did we do compared with the maintenance costs required to keep the plant open? Right. Right. And so they have to decide do we want to do this again next year and they say okay well last year we didn't we didn't make money because uh the wholesale electricity prices were so low that you know here was our bottom line for money that we took in here's what the refueling and upkeep maintenance costs would be in order to run another year do we want to run another year and um and do we have a sense of just in dollar terms what the what the maintenance costs are for a typical plant um, I, I don't know off the, off the top of my head. There are numbers, there are numbers out there. Um, and there are, and this is sort of what I talk about in the post, two important things about these numbers. One is that if you're in the nuclear industry, you have a very good incentive to make sure that those numbers are pretty high because then you can go to your regulator and say, look, you know, we've got really high maintenance costs. We need you to make us whole. And the second part is even if those numbers were perfectly accurate, they are not the salient numbers for deciding whether uh, a plant should run or not. The way you think about it is, is sort of like a 24-hour convenience mart. Right. Imagine that that quickie mart at four in the morning. They are not making money being open at four in the morning, but they stay open at four in the morning because it allows them to be open. You know, when that rush comes, they don't have to endure the costs of, you know, closing and opening every single day. Um, And so the possibility that, you know, busload of people comes in, there's variability, there's uncertainty in all of these things, make it so that the number that makes the nuclear plant whole over the year is something to ensure that you know they make profits every year. That's not the salient number that you want for the decision of whether you're going to retire a plant or not. Right? They can say, yeah, we lost money last year. We're going to lose money next year too. But you know, there are unexpected outages, there are heat waves, and during a heat wave, you make absolutely mind-boggling sums of money. And so do we want to be open when that heat wave arrives and we start making back all of this money? And so that's in, in economics, we talk about option value. And, and so you're willing to pay a certain amount of money to preserve the option value to be open for business when the good times come. So you, you mentioned a minute ago, uh, you know, prices and when, when prices are low, the, there's the potential for prices to be low enough that the maintenance costs um, exceed the revenue from electricity sales for these plants. And the industry is arguing that's really been the condition for some period of time now. Uh, and that, uh, and that in fact, that some of these plants are unprofitable to run. What's been, what's really been driving uh, that, that drop in prices, I guess? 
Yeah. I mean, for so they they tend to point to three main things. Uh, one is relatively lower demand. There hasn't been the demand growth that historically has been. Um, low natural gas prices when it's a, a gas-fired unit that's setting the overall market clearing price of electricity. Then when the price of natural gas falls, and you're a nuclear operator that's just collecting dollars over the course of the year, you're going to collect fewer dollars. And then um, the other factor is renewables generation. So there's been a, a great expansion in generation from wind in particular in areas that don't have the transmission capacity to deliver that power to places where people actually live. Uh, and as a result, that congests the system and it creates a situation where you've got more power coming onto the system than people are taking off of it. And the way that uh, the power system and a market responds to having too much supplies, you need to send a signal to people to ramp down their production. And so in the electric uh, power markets, that actually happens by turning the price negative. Right? You say, listen, we've got too much power. The way I'm going to tell you that we've got too much power is I'm going to start fining you for your production. Right? Uh, and so that, you know, there have been headlines about this because it's such a counterintuitive thing. Hold on, you're, you're fining people for producing power? Um, but this is, I think, really, it's really about um, the lack of transmission infrastructure to deliver that power to the places where it's needed. Because while you may have congestion in an area where too much electricity is being supplied, in absolutely 100%, absolutely every hour in which there has been a negative price for electricity somewhere in the United States, there has been a fossil-fired unit somewhere burning fuel that they had to buy, and they're receiving positive money for it. And so you've got a negative price in one place where producers are being fined, and a positive price in another place where producers are uh, getting paid to... Uh, produce electricity, that comes from an insufficient transmission system. So this is the condition really that's, uh, that's confronting uh, some subset uh, of nuclear generators today. Yeah. Um, they've got already low prices from just some of the changes in, in, the, in the economics and the structure of the grid, just really because of uh, all this cheap natural gas. And, and even, I guess, on their own, uh, aside from the congestion issue, renewables potentially have the ability to Put cheaper power on the grid because they have essentially zero fuel cost. Yep. Um, but you, th this is being compounded in some places by the your, your argument is by the lack of, a, of of an infrastructure build out that could connect these plants when there are times when there's really high congestion to other markets where there might be uh, where there might be higher higher uh, prices. And and we actually see that when you look at the uh, LMP map and you look at LMP nodes, certainly in Illinois, over the last several months, there are times when there are just enormous disparities. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, oh, I forgot to put that in. Well, it, it, I really didn't have room to put it in. But in a, in a future post about transmission, we'll uh, have a picture that really strikingly shows the uh, insufficiency of the transmission system here in, in the Midwest, where you've got really strongly negative prices 50 miles away from where the price is $800 a megawatt right. hour. Right, right. Uh, and so, in, in fact, the insufficiency of the transmission system is, is hurting the nuclear industry twice, because 
not only are they taking it on the chin when renewables uh, generation expands and demand isn't there to, to chew it up, but it also keeps them on the sidelines when times are good. When that heat wave arrives, if they can't deliver their power uh, to the places where it's demanded, then the price of electricity goes up in the place where demand is high, and they just sort of get left out on the margins. So a great example in, in New York, where uh, where they've just approved these subsidies, is that the plants that they were threatening to retire are all like way upstate. They're not near anybody. No one has been threatening to close the downstate uh, Indian Point nuclear plant except for security reasons. Uh, there's congestion downstate. There are you know, good prices that make the economics of running a nuclear plant downstate good. And so no one's thinking of closing Indian Point because it's uneconomical. Right. And so um, so this is all to say that, you know, the other downside of not having a transmission system that that works well is that the nuclear plants also have a harder time recovering their fixed costs when the times are good. So, I mean, if this all sounds a little, uh, I don't know, a little technical or, or uh, arcane to, to listeners, I mean, I think uh, it's important to put it in the context of this very uh, front line um, headline-grabbing policy debate that's happening right now, essentially around the country. Yeah, you have the nuclear industry saying, "Okay, because of these changes in the market, because of the prices we're facing and the costs of uh, of our fixed costs of maintenance, we just can't operate uh, many of these plants, and so we're considering we're considering shutting them down." Um, and that's really fed into what was already a rolling debate between a group of uh, you know environmentalists who say, well, we don't really need nuclear. We can meet our carbon reduction goals without uh, carbon-free baseload. Uh, and on the other hand, uh, you know, a, a coalition, there's the eco-modernists and, and others who are saying, no, you know, we really can't meet these goals without, without, strong, without a, a continued role for nuclear and maintaining this kind of base level of, of carbon-free generation. And so now this, this, uh, this, the politics of these subsidies has really kind of yeah. fed right into that debate, and it's only heated it up. And the economics of it is insane. The problem is that there's too much supply, and so prices are low. And so we're going to solve this problem of too much supply and low prices by subsidizing more supply, right? That's, that is, in effect, what they're doing, right? And so when they're saying, ah, it's, you know, we need five years of subsidies, like none of the fundamentals are really looking to change in terms of low natural gas prices, a lot of renewables generation. None of those things are going to change in five years. And so in another five years, we're going to be right back where we are today, or even worse, because all we've done is throw money at the problem to make the problem worse, right? It, it solves the problem for the nuclear industry's finances. It does nothing but make the problem worse for the actual economics of the electricity industry. At some point, uh, though, I guess the, the eco-modernists, the, that kind of, the, we need nuclear part of, you know, of this debate, what would they argue? Would they argue that um, that by subsidizing these plants and keeping these plants in operation, and then you have the continued growth of renewables? It, right now, the the fight is almost between those two, um, and they're arguing, well, it shouldn't be either or. If we can figure out a way to do and, it's these things will start to drive coal or natural gas out of the yeah. out of the system. Ultimately, the the and is that we need higher prices, 
right? And you get higher prices, one, by taxing ultimately the source of the externality, which is carbon. Uh, and so you like, this could be really, <laughs> there's a really easy solution to this economically. The problem has been the politics of it, right. of putting a price on carbon. All right. And so if you're in a constrained world where you just have to like right from the get go, just throw out the obvious and easy solution. The next solution then is to make sure that producers have access to consumers so that they can get a good price for what they are producing. Right. And as long as you have uh, a rickety transmission system that can't deliver the power to where it's needed, then you're not going to be able to get a good price for your output. Um, and so let's talk a little bit about then the, the nuclear industry's negotiating strategy in this, in this, uh, in this debate. So, uh, you know, they've laid out this case that this is the current, um, that this is the current condition they're facing, that they're, the economics just don't work and that some of these plants are going to have to close or so they say. Um, and you have a piece up on Forbes.com, uh, today that is arguing that we should take a really close look at the what's behind that position. Yeah. And essentially, as far as, uh, you know, in my reading of it, what you're arguing is that really this is the nuclear industry's attempt to establish a credible threat uh, so that they can then really um, have the most negotiating power possible as they as they move forward with in, in what I guess you would describe as like an iterated game. I mean, they're not just playing this in one state. They're playing yeah. this in multiple states. Definitely. Um, so, so I should start off by saying that I, I do believe that there is a price of electricity at which it is in their best interest to shut down a plant. The issue is that we don't know what that price is. And even if they disclose what their operating costs are, we still don't know what that price is because of the option value discussion we had earlier. Right? And so we're in a world where we don't know what that price is. And they have a very strong incentive to say, we've already crossed it. If you don't you know, give me the money or the nuclear plant gets it. Right. <laughs> right? Um, the, the other important part to, to keep in mind when they're having these discussions is that they also have a very strong incentive to make it sound like it's this irreversible thing. The nuclear plant gets it, right? We're, we're going to retire the plant. We're closing the plant. All of the headlines say that we're closing the plant. And a number of nuclear plants have uh, retired, they use the word, that's technically the term, that they, they retire the plant. But they still have their operating licenses. So the, the Vermont Yankee plant, for example, that retired a few years ago, uh, went through this long drawn out battle to have their operating license renewed. And then once it was renewed, they retired the plant. How does that make any sense? Why would they do that? It's because retiring and decommissioning, decommissioning a plant is a decades long process. It mm. takes a long time, right? There's, uh, you know, waste, lots of, it, there's a lot of decontamination to do. There, there's a lot of things where the, the way it's typically done is just by letting it sit there for years on end. Mm. So when you think of, you know, they're retiring a plant, we think of, oh, you know, they, they took that coal-fired plant downtown and they turned it into a hot club or, you know, something like that. Or, you know, they've bulldozed it and, and now it's a playground. For a nuclear plant, that is 
definitely not what they do. Nothing at that plant has changed. They haven't removed any of the hardware. They take the, the fuel out of the core that goes into a storage pool for a number of years to, to cool down before they can put it in long-term storage casts. But the, the plant itself isn't going anywhere. And so they have a very strong incentive to renew the license for the plant because 10 years from now, who knows what the price of electricity is going to be. And you may want to reverse course. Right? So they say we're retiring this plant. Nuclear is going to disappear, go away forever. Well, okay, so they don't refuel next year. and Maybe they sit next year out, right? And there will be some increase in, in carbon emissions when natural gas comes in to fill in for, for that gap there. I guess that's the key point, right? Is that, uh, is that in idling the plants, they retain the value, to, or the option rather, to bring it back yep. uh, if, if in the future... Um, you know the conditions support it. Yep. But in the in the short term, it's very likely to then, that in many of these places, if they idle the plant, that the that the marginal source of generation will be carbon, uh, some form of carbon fire generation, either coal or natural gas. For sure. Um, so, I guess let's then turn to to the the decisions that some of these states have made. So, you know, California has said we're probably not going to you know buy into this. We think we can do this through some combination of efficiency and renewables, et cetera. Uh, New York has said, uh, no, we don't think we can meet this ambitious goal, 50% of our power uh, carbon-free by 20, 2050, um, without this kind of base of nuclear power plants. And we'll see how that policy holds up in the courts. Uh, the way they did it is with a sort of sliding scale that it becomes a, a bailout so that if they make enough money on the market and you know the average price of electricity is a set amount, then they don't receive any subsidy at all. And so the amount of the subsidy that they get is tied to the price of uh, electricity on the market, which has the impact of basically undoing the market for capacity that these markets themselves run. And so there was a case, was it in, in Maryland or, or Virginia recently, mm -hmm. that was, uh, I, I think it was in, in Maryland, where it was basically like in a violation of the inter, uh, interstate commerce clause where it was like trying to support local generation um, for, uh, you know, the local utility, but only giving them enough depending on how much they needed to be made whole. Right. Um, there, there are parts of that that, that may run afoul of uh, some legal issues. Yeah. But, you know, so, so it's interesting that the, the New York decision has been held up by some as uh, almost like as an example, right, oh, of gosh. the path forward. So there are some people who are saying, well, look, uh, New York is a state that figured out how to do both things. They're, gonna, they're not choosing renewables or nuclear. They're choosing renewables and nuclear. They're doing the, you know, the sort of RPS approach uh, and a mandate plus the subsidies for nuclear. And your point is, no, that's a terrible idea. And that is that's a, a terrible idea. That in fact, that, the, that, um, that it, you know, if we just, it would be much more cost effective to just connect these plants to markets in a more integrated way. Yeah, it, that what they've done is solved the narrowest possible definition of the problem on the shortest possible scale, right? And and so like if if you think about like myopic policy making that's just sort of like voodoo uh, hoping things that are okay, uh, that's what they've done here. It's it's true they are keeping the nuclear plants open and they are continuing to subsidize wind. 
those are both facts. And so, yes, they have, insofar as the problem is that we need to keep these plants operating, they have solved that problem. But it sort of demonstrates a total ignorance of what actually caused the problem, and they have done absolutely nothing to solve the underlying problem, and in fact have probably made it worse. And so uh, I, I think it's worth just, I, I guess, diving into a little bit of why that is. So why why do states have such a hard time with transmission? I mean, I, I understand, and maybe it's just, a, it's just taking a bigger, the problem at the national level and scaling it down to the local level, but I understand the interstate transmission issue, right? It's very difficult um, to go to a state and say, we're going to, you know, sorry, Minnesota, you're just going to be the bypass for the lines from North Dakota to Chicago. Uh, and Minnesota says, well, what do I get out of it? And they say yeah. nothing. And then Minnesota says, well, then, you know, take your, uh, take your suitcase elsewhere. Yeah. But so is that is it just a microcosm of that problem within the state? Are there counties essentially that get passed over and people don't want the power lines? Or what is really the why? This seems problem. like such a blindingly obvious solution. Why does it not come up? Uh, politics. I mean, so first I should say that there are costs of building transmission lines uh, for for sure. And so the the particular question of does it make sense to build a particular transmission line? Uh, is a is actually a tricky one. The the engineering of it and the economics of it uh, are not simple. Um, our institutions for deciding how uh, or which transmission lines get built are are totally outdated and have not kept pace with um, the institutional changes of markets themselves. We we now use markets to decide which plants are going to operate over the course of the day in the areas that we've been discussing. They don't do that for deciding which transmission lines get built. And so they have um, it it varies across areas and I'm not like totally versed in the details of how it works, but it's basically the independent system operator themselves making a decision of hey, where do we want to put this line, right? And then once you do that, it gets into all of the not-in-my-backyard politics right. of, of where the line goes. So this is a problem that, first of all, has huge, uh, I think, uh, stakes for the public and for our ability to deal with climate. If every uh, incremental carbon-free kilowatt hour that's coming on the grid is just being offset by a, you know, uh, a nuclear plant closure, that's uh, not a desirable outcome. We might say, well, the nuclear industry could be just bluffing and, you know, they'll, that, that this is part of the negotiating strategy. Um, but it's also possible that, like, the politics of then continuing to subsidize the nuclear industry eventually will just get tiresome and, you know. For sure, it absolutely destroys any incentive that they have to try to fix the underlying problem or find some innovation to uh, make it less bad, right? Because now, like, any of these problems are someone else's problem. Right. Their, their bottom line is guaranteed. They right. don't, like, Exelon doesn't have to lift a finger. We got our check. Right. Right. Do we need to maybe reconfigure things to peak over the course or not peak, but follow load follow in load, some ways right. or drive um, costs down, drive costs down? Do we need to take a hard look at what transmission investment should be made and be lobbying toward changing the institutions around uh, transmission investment? All of those things become someone else's problem. Right. I got my check. And ultimately, that's, I guess in some ways, someone else is really the taxpayer. Yes. 
Um, yeah. Well, the thing is that it's it's always the rate pairs problem, right? That that it's no longer Exelon's problem is because the rate pairs have written them a check, right? And so, like, no matter how you slice it, the rate payer is getting hosed here. Um, that's that's for sure, right? It's just a question of whether Exelon wants to do anything to change that, right? Um, and this isn't a problem, you you know that uh, that seems like it's going to necessarily get any better uh, if you just look at the market fundamentals. Yeah. Um, you have in your piece on Forbes this graph, which I found really striking and compelling, uh, and essentially it shows that uh, as wind generation increases the congestion uh, you know, effects ultimately drive this price gap between the, a broader market, in this case, Illinois, the broader market price and the price that a specific nuclear plant is able to capture. Yeah. It just drives that gap wider and wider and wider. Yeah. Um, and so you know, as it, based on the current transmission system, that as wind generation, which is heavily subsidized, continues to uh, build out and increase across the country, this is just going to become a more pressing and urgent issue for for nuclear and i would imagine more plants yep. and so this is you know from a from a policy standpoint even if we're able to paper over some of this on these first few plants we probably have a lot more of this coming that the the gap in that figure uh is only going to get worse as more wind generation comes online Right. So as more wind generation comes online right now, I think on a typical day, um, like the average number on that figure is about, uh, what is it? 5,000, uh, megawatts. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so at, at the moment on average, they're taking a, like a seven or eight, uh, maybe $9 per megawatt hour hit relative to if they could just sell their power at the sort of call it like an Illinois wide price, right? Um, as renewables expands, they're going to start taking a bigger and bigger hit. So these bailout packages that they're negotiating today are based on the hit that they're taking today. Nothing about the policies that have been proposed does anything to change the fundamentals of where we're headed on this figure, which is more towards 10 than zero. And so the hit that they take is only going to get bigger. So nuclear is going to see its non-subsidy revenue dry up farther and farther as renewables expand. They're going to be making less and less money on the market because, again, the market's going to be saying, for the love of God, I've got too much power. Why are you throwing all this power at me? Um, so we're only going to continue to do that. The problem is going to get worse. And so they're going to come to the table saying, you know, look, the first time we did this, we were making $23 a megawatt hour and we needed a bailout. Well, now we're making 13. And instead of facing negative prices 3% of the year, we're facing negative prices 13% of the year. Uh, our finances are only worse. We're going to have to close if you don't write us a check. And that check's only going to get bigger. It's hard when you when you think about it that way. If you go back to the point of what you'd really like is nuclear and renewables to be driving out uh, carbon fire generation, it's, it's hard to escape the conclusion that you're not going to solve any of this uh, 
transmission is certainly important, but you're not, you may not solve any of this without a price on carbon. Um, solve it completely. Uh, I could see that. The thing is that if, if this gap didn't exist, I don't think that we'd be talking about closing the Clinton plan. Right. Right. We could still be increasing, like for as much wind as we have in the Midwest, right? There's none in the Southeast, right? We talk about duck curves in California. The duck curve in California is because there's a whole lot of solar in California during the day, right? The fraction of solar in like overall American generation is nothing. Our problem in integrating these things is that we're trying to integrate them in very small spaces and we're just like hammering home megawatt hour after megawatt hour in a particular spot rather than being able to spread it out where you don't even notice that there was a big gust of wind. God, so that's interesting. So then that takes it from this is a problem of uh, transmission build out and integration within individual states uh, to... You know, even if so, once you solve that problem, then the next question, really the bigger question, becomes how do we solve it across multiple states and ultimately a more integrated grid, whether within a state or, or really ultimately across the country, um, would also solve a lot of this. Absolutely. Well, that's all the time we have for today. So thanks for joining us, Steve. Thanks for having um, me. Steve's post is up on Forbes.com, so be sure to check it out. Uh, and make sure to subscribe to Off the Charts wherever you get your podcasts, including on our website at epic.uchicago.edu. Thanks for listening, and until next time, I'm Sam Ori.